This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu. That's C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N dot E-D-U to download this book in PDF format or to purchase this book. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by Rusus John Rushduni. Copyright 2007, Mark R. Rushduni. Published by Calcedon Ross House Books. P.O. Box 158, Vallecito, California, 95251. All rights reserved. The Cure of Souls, Recovering the Biblical Doctrine of Confession by R.J. Rushduni. Chapter 41, Turning Men into Moral Zeros. As the Church abandons confession for a system of counselling that transfers guilt and sin to others, the State increasingly compels confession by various devices. We have seen how the US Senate compels confession by denying the jurisdiction over it of the Fifth Amendment to the US Constitution. The various Marxist states are intense believers in the necessity of confession. If the state decides that a person is a dissident, the individual in in question is summarily arrested and then tortured until he makes all kinds of confessions to sins invented by the torturers. Armando Valladares, a prisoner in Fidel Castro's torture prisons for 22 years for the expression of an opinion, wrote an account of his experience. Against All Hope, a title taken from Romans 4.18. The demand of the Soviet Union of all such satellite states was and is that after a season of savage tortures, the prisoners be given the opportunity to join a political rehabilitation program. This did not give them freedom, only relief from incessant torture. The sadistic guards disliked the measure of restraint placed upon them, but, quote, They were made to see that the ultimate aim of political rehabilitation was the internal annihilation of the prisoner, the destruction of all his principles. Turning a man into a moral zero would be the supreme vengeance. Thus, the state retains the idea of sin to charge men with imaginary sins in order to destroy them and to reduce them into a moral zero. Whereas God created man a moral being in his own image, with knowledge, righteousness, holiness and dominion, from Genesis 1.26-28, Colossians 3.10, Ephesians 4.24, man seeks to destroy God's work and reduce man to a moral zero. This we would expect of the humanistic state, but why should the churches, evangelical and reformed, work to do the same thing? Martin and Deidre Brobe Bobgan have written extensively on anti-Christian counselling programs within the church, most recently in 12 Steps to Destruction, Codependency Recovery Heresies, 1991. Too often the victim is made the target of a counselling program wherein guilt is transferred from the offender to the parents or the community. To make a man into a moral zero leaves society with an impossible problem. That is, impossible to solve in terms of the premises of the psychotherapy. After all, crime happens, husbands and or wives sin, abuse one another, commit adultery and so on. 
If the acting offender is not guilty, then there is no effective restraint on sin. Then all sin and crime have a justification and a vindication as against their accusers. What happens then? Of late, several women have consulted me and have provided documentation of their victimization by their husbands and by their churches. To illustrate, and this illustration fits several situations, the husband is on drugs, or an alcoholic, he is flagrantly adulterous, he may have a venereal or sexually transmitted disease, including AIDS, he has robbed his wife of the money she has earned with her work, trying to provide for the family, or in some instances sold items belonging to her or inherited by her, he has lied to her repeatedly, and so on and on. The church does not contest these facts. Rather, it says to the wife, return to the family home and we will work this out. Your husband has agreed to this. The fact that he has agreed to this more than once, sometimes five or six times, and then continued his lawless living once she is home does not upset the church. They are, after all, committed to a no-divorce faith, now a common Protestant error. If God could speak of divorcing Israel, and if God's law permits divorce on certain grounds, this means nothing to churches determined to be holier than God, a position first held by Satan. In Genesis 3, 1-6. What happens if the wife refuses to submit to these ungodly terms? Excommunication. What happens to the husband? Usually nothing. The Roman Catholic Church would once as would once, as a rule, demand some kind of penance. Our more enlightened Roman Protestant churches do not. But what about our Lord's word in Matthew 18:21-22? Quote, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Jesus saith unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. End quote. These words bring out a form of idiocy in churchmen. They speak of the necessity for unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness, but as always, a text without a context is a pretext. Immediately prior to this, our Lord in Matthew eighteen fifteen to twenty deals with the man who refuses to right a wrong. His wronged brother is to go to him first, alone, then with witnesses, then the church is notified, not of charges, but of a verified offence. And if the offender neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. From Matthew 18.17 Where is the unconditional love and unconditional forgiveness here? It does not exist. What then is our Lord saying? We must begin by recognising that all our modern definitions of forgiveness, especially since the Renaissance, are false and heretical. The word forgive has reference in scripture to God's law, to the supreme court of the universe. It can mean either 1. Charges dropped because satisfaction has been rendered, or 2. As in Luke 23.34, charges suspended for the time being. The word is a juridical term, not an emotional one. It does not give us the right to forgive on our terms because it is God's law that is at stake and restitution or deferment rest on his law. Confession in the church is now a formality because forgiveness has been made emotional and humanistic. 
In writing our Lord's words on the cross, Dr. K. Schilder said with respect to Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, from Luke 23.34, words spoken by our Lord concerning the Roman soldiers, quote, Suffice to say that the word forgive, as it is used here, in our text can mean to release someone, not to put the charge or sentence against the person into execution at once, not yet to affect the penalty with which the transgression, according to reason and right, probably deserves. Hence, there are two kinds of forgiveness. There is a forgiveness which, on the basis of law, says to someone, I shall cancel that which you have done amiss. The legal issue has been carefully considered, the verdict of the court has been has in no sense been postponed, nor its effect mitigated, but we have found a legal basis, according to which the letter and the spirit of the law sets you free forever from the persecution of the law. Such forgiveness has a place, among other things, in the justification of the sinner. But there is also a forgiveness which consists solely of a temporary suspension of the charge of, of the charge or of the sentence. With or without a legal sentence, someone whose breach of law has been alleged or proved can temporarily be freed from the persecution of law. Two possibilities for the future arise from such a temporary dismissal of action. Later, the man who has temporarily been dismissed dismissed from the course of law can be arrested and condemned anew, or in the interim which ensues, a legal basis may be found by means of which he definitively and strictly, according to the requirements of law, is forever acquitted. It was such a detention of the execution of law, preliminary and incidental, which Jesus had in mind. End quote. The sentimental and emotional definition of forgiveness comes more out of Boccaccio's Decameron than out of Scripture. It is evil, first because it is not biblical. It transfers the legal fact of forgiveness from the realm of God's law to the sphere of human feelings. It is humanistic, not biblical. It is not surprising that as forgiveness has become humanistic, so too has excommunication. It has become grounded in church law, not God's law, so that its canon, or rule, is man, not God's word. Second, the false definition of forgiveness undermines and finally destroys the doctrine of atonement. God regards sin so seriously that it can only be forgiven or atoned for by the crucifixion of the incarnate Son of God. For someone on personal grounds to say, I forgive you, is to usurp the prerogative of God. It is to say that sin can be wiped out by my feelings, not by Christ's atonement, or with those who are redeemed, as well as those who are not, without restitution. Such a perspective wipes out the foundation of Christian faith, doctrine and life. It undermines the Church of Christ to make it the Church of Sanctimonious Humanism. I believe that there is a close connection between the erosion of the church and its adoption of a false doctrine of forgiveness. Later medieval pietism did much to promote this false doctrine and the reformers, while setting forth the classical doctrine of the atonement, reflected at various times their medieval heritage with respect to views of forgiveness. Third, we began by citing the Marxist goal to turn people into moral zeros to remake them into a humanistic and materialistic image of man. 
without atonement and with all of this humanistic indoctrination, man still remains man, a creature made in God's image. He is a sinner, not a moral zero. Humanistic counselling and humanistic forgiveness leave him a sinner still. In fact, his problem has been worsened because instead of being justified by Christ's atonement, he is given a pseudo-justification by evil counsellors so that he is made more evil. Our Lord says, quote, When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. End quote. From Matthew 12, 43-45. This was a parable by our Lord to an ungodly nation and church, and it was a promise of judgment on Judea. How much more will it not apply to our generation? The first demon is not even cast out. Men are reduced to moral zeros by both church and state. The reason is clear. There is no fear of God before their eyes. From Romans 3:18 and verses following and Psalm 36 verse 1. This is the end of chapter 41. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.